I think it's the loudest it's ever been in my ears. <laughs> yeah. It definitely peaks. <laughs> your ears. I don't give a <laughs> So I think he's actually mad. Dude. I, am, I, I am a little bit mad. One to ten, how mad are you right now? Eleven. <laughs> <laughs> Alright guys, this is Four Best Friends Fight About Film Forever, a podcast about movies and things more important than movies if we ever find any. Like getting the title of the podcast correct. <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. Alright guys, this week uh, we'll each be picking one actor and talking about three of their movies. Acting! The special power of acting. To kick <sighs> us off, say your name and which actor would play you in your life story, like a movie about you. Sure. Well, uh, this is Gibby. Kyle T. Gibby Gibson. And I feel like that nickname gets longer it's every the week. Best. It's the best. <laughs> Throughout my life, I've been compared to a bunch of different looking actors, from Seth Rogen to Lee Schreiber. If they had a baby, it might Will be Ferrell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But If they had a baby, it would also be a miracle of modern science. It really would. Just like Gibby. <laughs> <laughs> what actor would I like to play me? It wouldn't be Seth Rogen. I would select... Why wouldn't it be Seth Rogen? I don't yeah. like his pot smoking oh. ways. I don't think it's, yeah. <laughs> he's filthy. I'd go with uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson because <laughs> A, he's big and strong. B, everybody likes him. Three, he's got a million dollar smile. It'd be Dwayne <laughs> Johnson, no difference except with curly hair. That'd be all they would do. He actually had curly it. hair if you look at like young Dwayne Johnson. He's got curly hair. Uh, this is Lance. The actor I've been told I look like the most is Val Kilmer. But arguably my favorite actor is Kurt Russell. I would love to have Kurt Russell play me. Just and those guys are oddly similar. Yeah, and that seems to line up age-wise. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's not nice. He can play you. That's another guy with great hair. I'm like 20 years older than him. I mean, younger than him. That's what I mean. How would that line up? I was joking. It does not line up age-wise. He'd have to play 20 years younger. Yeah, there'd be a lot of CGI on his face. I love the thought of either one of those people shadowing you in your real life (laughs) to learn about you. (laughs) (laughs) They have to go to your office job. (laughs) Kurt Russell seems like a guy I would just love to hang out with. He does seem like a fantastic dude. Dude. Yeah, he just seems great. Yeah, uh, Jordan, Hillary Swank. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Oh, I'm Jordan. Well, he said, Hudson said Jordan. I'm Jordan. Uh, Hillary Swank. Hillary Swank is what's who your, I would want. What's to your reasoning there? I just think she'd make me a lot more interesting than I am. Huh. Make you a better fighter. Definitely. Definitely. Better man. Is this yeah. a reference better to her karate? playing a man? Yeah. I just know she has a track like record of, boys of playing yeah. a man, and uh-huh. so although the actor who most resembles Jordan is Hacksaw Jim Duggan. <laughs> Is he an actor? <laughs> He's acting out there, buddy. Yeah. Now? He's a performer. Acting pretty hard. He is a performer. My name is Hudson, and based solely on looks, I'm going to go with Morgan Freeman. Excellent choice. <laughs> That's a good choice. All right, we asked you guys on Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> You're for... really stopping with that? <laughs> Sorry, we, we asked you guys on Facebook and Twitter for your favorite actors and their three best movies, and a few of you guys uh, responded. This is Adam Williams, who responded on Twitter. He said, Russell Crowe, Gladiator, 310 to Yuma, and Cinderella Man. Hey, speaking of Twitter, we have a Twitter feed, guys. We do? Yeah. <laughs> We're it's at Fight About Film on Twitter. Fight about film. I think you say it every podcast. <laughs> yeah, I do. Right? But nobody <laughs> listens by that part. 
Nobody listens halfway <laughs> I, through. I, I, like, but I put so much entertaining stuff after that. You do like a song. Lance, you want to take Don't this next ruin one? It. Yeah. Spoiler alert. This is Randolph Clap. Live Omen in one persona to the immigrants. Three scenes from a marriage, as well as anything else she's in, directed by Ingmar Bergman. Him and her work so well together to bring a really great performance. <laughs> um, I never heard of anything in this sentence besides <laughs> Ingar, Ingmar Bergman. Really? Uh, I've seen two yeah. of those movies, uh, Persona Damn. and Scenes from a Marriage, both great films, especially Persona. So I'm missing out on some Liv Ullman. You're mm-hmm. missing out on so much. Liv, Liv was married to Ingmar Bergman, right? Mm, I believe that's correct. Go for it, Gibby. Buckle up. This one goes on for a while. James Legg. Emma Thompson. One. Much Ado About Nothing. Comedy. I'm sorry. I love when he starts laughing at his own. How many words do we get in there? Six? (laughs) (laughs) When Emma Thompson, much ado about nothing, comedy chemistry between her and Branagh is so good, the Shakespeareness of it faded away. Two, sense and sensibility, crying scene at the end. It's funny. It's tender. It's awkward. It's sincere. Three, saving Mr. Bank. The balancing act of portraying a stiff, proper person who has put her deepest wounds on the pages of a children's book. Well, we'll see you next week. Uh, great choice. I love Emma Thompson. I she's think awesome. She's fantastic. I she's think great. so too, but I actually looked recently and I've seen almost none of her films. Really? Mm-hmm. That's surprising because huh. I feel like she's in a lot of stuff. Yeah. I know. that I was surprised too. All right. If you want your favorites read on the show, you can leave us your comments at facebook.com slash fightaboutfilm or at fightaboutfilm on Twitter. All right, guys. Actors. Did you? How did you pick? How and why did you pick your actors? Are these your favorite actors or what's the deal there? Well, one of my things, I criteria or questions I asked myself was, could any other actor have pulled off this role and been as good or better probably and, uh, hmm. i want to clarify the answer to that question is always yes <laughs> no i really think on my three the three films that i picked for my one actor i'm not sure anybody else could have done it any of the better. six billion people on this <laughs> no planet you're saying not one I mean, person seven could have seven now seven billion. is it seven is that where we're at now i think we're up to seven so that's a whole another billion actors more listeners <laughs> you guys are a-holes <laughs> Lance Jordan Mine was uh, No I, I actually I kind of went In the opposite direction Mine was more based On the movies And I wanted right. to find An actor who was In three movies I thought were great <laughs> Mine was a little bit Based on the director too I picked an actor Who has one of those Famous director-actor Relationships Oh yeah um, So I'll get into good that one. later I chose by Thinking of actors I knew of That I'd seen in films It's a good start it's See good, I thought so. You started with films And then worked backwards Based on your pick I don't know Somebody you came up With the really topic And I was like Oh I could do that that guy, he's an idea, and so I, I picked go. him. Good enough. Uh, he's in movies. Yeah, moving on. Yeah, yeah. I picked I, I picked someone that had an interesting life story in addition to liking the movies that he's in. So that's the direction I went. Prepare cool. for that, Gibby. Why don't you kick us off? Today we're going to give thanks for T. Hanks. That's right, Tom <laughs> Hanks. Wow, I just did that, guys. That was <laughs> a good one. You know, I made that joke. First like, one to do it. Episode to come. No. <laughs> <laughs> on our when we asked this question on Facebook, there's actually more than one person that responded with Tom Hanks. So, yeah. I mean, I just think he's one of our greatest super actors original today. answer, Gibby. He's funny and charming. I just I just love Tom Hanks movies. He generally makes good movies. Although having 87 credits in IMDb, there's a couple of uh, not so good ones in there. I hope you um, picked them, Gibby. I'm looking at your notes right now, and you have the sentence written. I think Tom Hanks is one of the most under rated actors today. I did. That's really, really false. How is that possible? 
Guy, okay, he's so he's generally known as one of our greatest <laughs> actors, like ever, <laughs> right? But so one of the my first film, all right, first film I pick is Captain Phillips. Tom Hanks was not nominated for that movie. Well, he wasn't and, nominated for every single movie he was <laughs> in. That doesn't make him he underrated. Been nominated a good You're saying no, that particular really movie was underrated? No, like apparently in Sully, he got, I don't know, I haven't seen Sully, but apparently he gives a great performance in it. And I think people just started. I don't underrated is maybe not the right word, but how about it's, taken for granted? Like people are we don't value and praise Tom Hanks enough. Mm. Is what you're saying? Okay, I think he does. All right, because he didn't start off with any huge role that was kind of like, look at me and how important I am. Uh, what what he's managed to accomplish with his career is very impressive. Yeah, to go from I like agree. the like sophomoric comedies. Yeah, at the I mean, end. it'd be like if Adam Sandler made it. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a, no, that's a that's a great point that I just made. <laughs> <laughs> My first pick of Tom Hanks is Captain Phillips. It's a 2013 Paul Greengrass film, in which uh, Hanks plays Rich Phillips, captain of a commercial shipping boat, it's going around the Horn of Africa. The ship is then boarded and taken over by four Somalian pirates, and the film revolves around Captain Phillips and his survival of this hijacking. It's actually based on a true story from 2009. What's kind of funny is like when I, I'm sure you guys may remember, but when you saw the news reports that there were pirates hijacking things and it started about the late 2000s, I had just had this funny idea in my head of like these guys with bandanas and pirates jumping on these giant ships. Yeah, real funny, Gibby. <laughs> people <laughs> dying. Like with swords and things. Goods being stolen. Hacking people, to, hacking Arr, some people. Yeah. Like Johnny Depp. That's hilarious. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but one thing that the movie does is a great job of showing you how scary <laughs> it actually is. That is not the is. case at all, <laughs> yeah. turns out. It taught me pirates aren't <laughs> Really like that. They have like guns and stuff. Because I thought I was going to see Pirates of the Caribbean. Basically, I was like, "Well, yeah. nope." Yeah. And I was end up being shocked that like these huge ships didn't have any sort of security. That people Captain would just Jack jump Phillips. On <laughs> I, I like this movie. It's a great movie. I really enjoyed it. Watched it again last night. And I think Hanks is fantastic in this. And to me, it's his best performance since my number two movie, which we'll talk about later. I actually like think that it's movie. a better performance than number two. I it may be. I think this might be his greatest performance of his career thus far. What? I don't know if I disagree with you there. I disagree. Well, I just disagreed with you to make that statement, so (laughs) you changed my mind. (laughs) It didn't take much. He he did a 180 on that pretty quick. So it's a little bit different Tom Hanks in this. He's very calm and controlling. There's no, there's really no charm at all. He's not a charming character in this, and he's not funny. There's no wit or whatever in his characters. That's a typical Tom Hanks thing. The final 10 minutes of this movie are just amazing. Yeah, they, they really are. Essentially what it is is Tom Hanks' character after he's been rescued and a nurse checking him out and it's just this very real kind of what, like two, three minutes on screen of what it would be like having gone through something like that and you're finally coming down from that kind of horrific experience. Yeah. Captain Phillips, please come in. Have a seat. Try my shoe. I'm Chief O'Brien. I'll be your corpsman today, okay? Can you please tell me what's going on? Can you talk? Can you tell me what's going on? Yeah, uh, I'm okay. Are you okay? Because you don't look okay. Are you in any pain right now? Are you in any pain right now? Right there on your side. Okay, let me see it really quick. Can you lift up your arm a little bit? Does that hurt? A little bit? A little bit. Okay, is it tender? Go ahead and put your arm down. Okay, I need you to look at me. I need you to calm down. I need you to breathe. There you go. Deep breaths. There you go. Very good. That segues a little bit into what I wanted to say about this. Like I, Movies like this are why I love Tom Hanks so much, and they demonstrate why he's arguably the most popular 
modern day American actor. Un- you forgot underrated. Yeah. underrated. <laughs> so underrated. Most people haven't even heard of him. Um, this this isn't a film loaded with star power where he gets to be this awesome hero and he doesn't even look very good in the movie. I mean, he looks like oh, just kind rude. of a no. I don't. I, I don't. I mean, it's just he's not all like actored up, no, like all t- star totally. powered up. Looks um, like a regular Joe. But there's nothing. Uh, what I'm saying is, is there's nothing about this film that would feed a big star's ego. Like his very acceptance of this role to me demonstrates why I think he's so beloved. And it's just he's just humble. You mm-hmm. hear these stories of stars forcing script rewrites so they get to look more awesome, blah blah blah. And Hanks is just the antithesis of that. And that last five minutes is a great point. It, 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 you know, it, it makes that point where it's it, he's not he didn't like win. He grabbed the gun and he yeah. shot him. He's just sitting there like weeping. And it's it's like he's willing to just strip everything away because he knows it makes the story more powerful, even if it might make him look kind of weak as a character. Yeah. And a lot of actors wouldn't do that. A lot of actors in this position would go, "No, I've got to have the big scene at the end where blah blah blah." He just he's willing to not make himself the centerpiece of everything. And he right. seems like just a great guy in general, like somebody that most people would want to hang out with. And I think that's why people want to keep seeing his movies over and over again. They connect with something in him. He's often referred to as kind of the modern day Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. And Jimmy Stewart had a lot of those same qualities. And I think I think that's why people love him so much, as underrated as he is. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think one thing about that, even, even, I mean, it's not just the final scene with the nurse. It's the scene before when he's in the lifeboat uh, and they had just killed the three other pirates. And like just a shock when... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He realizes that he's alive and that those three are dead and he's covered in blood. And it's just so human. I mean, that's mm-hmm. and in my number two movie, too. I write about this, that his reactions are just human. Mm-hmm. And it's like what you just said. He doesn't want a big yeah. scene. He's, he, he doesn't do anything heroic in this movie right. other than survive and keep it together. Well, yeah. and, I, and I think heroic in, in this way that he shows more vulnerability than we're used to seeing on right. screen, which which makes it so much more real and moving and meaningful. And I think it's exactly what you're saying, Lance, that like that's what makes him him. I could I also kept seeing this title and kept thinking of Captain Ron. Yeah. <laughs> Captain Ron. Yeah, Very different. different film. It is yeah. different. Just My, a different take on the same story, <laughs> really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I and Greengrass does a great job in this movie and I wanted little trivia about the very end scene that we've been talking about. Uh, he, they, the, the nurse that they had hired was just an extra, I think. And she may have been an actual nurse and was cleaning him up. And she, Hanks kind of improvised the end, mm. how, how he reacted. And it just kind of froze her. So the first take, you know, he starts kind of crying and being in shock. And apparently the first take, she just froze up and didn't say any of her lines. Yeah. I'd forget had that that part, that whole part wasn't scripted. Yeah. Well, yeah, also read, she didn't even know who he was cause he's so underrated. Like, yeah. Nobody, nobody yeah. knew who he was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the, talking about it makes me want to watch it again right now. I enjoyed it so much, and so we'll see you next week. Yeah, I'm go watch Captain <laughs> Phillips. I think his uh, choice of having a hook for a hand and eye patch was a little weird. <laughs> it was, it was odd. Awkward, yeah. Yeah, controversial. I mean, it's just been done before. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jordan, number three. My guy here is Wilford Brimley. Wilford Brimley, <laughs> a veteran film actor who's got 77 and counting acting credits on MDIB. But before he was a farmer, a rodeo rider, a blacksmith, a jazz singer, and was even a bodyguard to the mysterious billionaire filmmaker and aviator Howard Hughes. Are you kidding me? What? I am not kidding. Yeah, that. Oh my Completely gosh. insane. Wow. Yeah. Howard, you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> but if you didn't know him from any of that, I'll just let the man introduce himself. Good morning. I'm Wilfred Brimley, and I'd like to talk to you for a few minutes about diabetes. Brimley is a is sort of a cult cultural icon, mm-hmm. and uh, turns out he's endlessly fascinating. Endlessly old too. He so yeah. yeah he he never looked young. I tried to Google pictures of young Wilfred Brimley. I couldn't find a thing. No, I don't think young pictures of him exist. I don't either. Uh, what does come up when you Google him is uh, the following: Wilfred Brimley diabetes. Wilfred Brimley dead. <laughs> I think everybody thinks he's dead. <laughs> yeah, he's not. He's not. Wilfred Brimley cat. <laughs> 
Didn't cat. know what that meant. <laughs> Clicked on it. Oh, he looks like a cat. There was a cat that oh, looks like Wilford Brimley, yeah. and it's hilarious. Yeah. Although I have to say, I always thought he looked more like a walrus. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. In 1993, Brimley appeared in Sidney Pollock's adaptation of John Grisham's novel, The Firm. Tom Cruise plays the role he's best at playing, a young hotshot. This time, he's a promising young law school graduate recruited by a small firm in Memphis. But once he starts the job, things aren't as sweet as they seemed. Uh, we have to take a quick commercial break here. Take it away, Mr. Brimley. You know, when I was a kid and got a hold of a nickel, I thought I was rich. I didn't turn up my nose at pennies either. Today, some folks won't even bend to pick them up. Well, here's a bowl of steaming Quaker oatmeal. And I can't think of a healthier way to start today. Cost you one nickel and four pennies. So if you can't be bothered with nickels and pennies, throw them in a jar. Start an oatmeal fund, Quaker Oats. It's the right thing to do. Not too expensive either. And we're back. Thanks, Wilford. Brimley plays William DeVasher, head of security for the Memphis firm. He's intimidating and almost scary in this role. Yeah, I remember the uh, posters for this. Wilford Brimley is the firm. <laughs> the firm. Well, he, he's not actually the firm. He, he's head of security Just at the firm. Just tell you what was on the poster, Jordan. No, I don't remember that. This isn't really the grandfatherly, oatmeal-loving Brimley that we're used to. In one scene, Brimley blackmails the young lawyer on behalf of the firm with some photos of Cruz's Caribbean infidelity. Here's your Abby, one day walking to the mailbox, anticipating the arrival of her red book, her sharper image catalog. What does she find instead? She finds heartache, Mitch. The death of love and trust. Imagine her one day opening that. Go ahead, take a look. Devastating. Not just screwing, Mitch. The kind of intimate acts, oral and whatnot. It could be particularly hard for a trusting young wife to forgive and impossible to forget. Brimley has been in three Sidney Pollock movies, and Pollock had this to say about him. I don't think Wilford can do anything false. He comes in with a built-in crap detector. He's just not like an actor. He's like a real person, which is surely one of the most befuddling comments you can make about someone who is actually an actor. But apparently it was a compliment. Pollock also had this to say about him. Is he still alive? <laughs> uh, but it's Sidney Pollock who's dead. <laughs> Way to bring it down. Man. <laughs> so take that uh, on. <laughs> To be fair, Brimley says of himself, I'm not a musician, I'm not even an actor, just a guy, just a feller. The Firm is a brilliant piece of legal suspense, if you're into that sort of thing, as I most certainly am. Yeah, he's a jazz singer, as I uh, mentioned earlier. Brimley is? Skip right yeah. over that. So he's put out several albums. Lance, how would he sing jazz? Well, if you want some oatmeal, <laughs> come and get it. I'm tired. That's not far off, actually. Is that how it sounds? I'd argue that The Firm is one of Tom Cruise's best roles, and it's full of other great performances by Gene Hackman, who looks not a day over 56 in this movie, Hal Holbrook, Gary Busey, hairless Ed Harris, Gene Triplehorn, and one of my all-time favorites, Holly Hunter. This is a really well-cast movie. Other than Cruise, not like a lot of major star power. I guess mm-hmm. Hackman, pretty Hackman's, big star. Yeah. But it's just loaded with all these like guys that are just cool. Yeah. And girls. And, and girls. And girls, for sure. Holly Hunter was nominated for an Oscar for her role in this. Whoa, what? 
Yeah, really? and, sh- and she's on screen for less than yeah. six minutes wow. out of a two and a half hour movie. Yeah, I agree with you, Jordan. This is a great film. It came out at kind of the height of the nation's John Grisham obsession. Yeah, uh, this um, and this was the brief. first. This yeah, was the same first year. Movie. It was her good days. It was the first one. Uh, this is one of the few instances where the ending of the movie is arguably better than the ending of the book. Because the problem in John Grisham books is it always ends in a, in a witness protection program. Or a giant oh. spider comes and eats somebody. That's oh, fault. Yeah, no, wrong that's different. Wrong different. Oh, that's sorry. John King. Um, and, and in this, what they do is this really smart thing where he brings down the firm, but in a way that was really creative, where he has to find this like legal loophole. Yeah, the film had a very like classy Memphis feel to it, mm-hmm. where it was like piano in the background. And it had this yeah. kind of jazzy thing going with it. But this is a movie that does such a good job of setting a mood yeah. that just works so well. Yeah. But I, I remember really loving this movie. I, I haven't watched it in a few years. I'm not sure if it holds up as it well. Does. But it's still great. But uh, it's definitely one I want to revisit. Does yeah. this fall into the Tom Cruise's Good at Stuff movie definitely. series? Definitely. Good definitely at Tom Cruise is uh, good Tom, at running. Uh, yeah, he runs in this. Yeah. 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 Isn't that weird? Actually, the picture has the poster has him running. The poster running. has him running. Man, there, loves to there's run. actually, there's one bit in in this movie that I think they that Pollock takes too far where he's trying to set up Tom Cruise or he does very well set up Tom Cruise as this like super nice super talented like hot young hotshot as Cruise is and uh, they're walking in Memphis Q share and um, and there's a like a kid doing flips for money and so Tom Cruise runs and does flips <laughs> with, with the it. kid and she's like whoa like back yeah. off a little bit yeah where well, he's amazing at absolutely everything right it's ridiculous although they they go back to that moment later in the movie where he's sad when walking in Memphis and he walks by the same kid and doesn't do a flip my favorite part was when he's all like uh, you can't handle the truth oh no different movie oh. but that's a great part of that other movie <laughs> or when he's like hey I'm Jerry Maguire <laughs> what's, what's going on <laughs> you know you know <laughs> what, if he, what about that part when he's like hey I'm the top gun around here <laughs> from yeah from, can i get uh, you a cocktail yeah all right oh, let's boy. move on lance. Like you guys are really <laughs> tiptoeing into some risky business lance your your actor and your number three well in keeping with the theme of being the pretentious douche nozzle on this show <laughs> yeah. i picked uh, international actor uh toshiro mifuni also the uh, only dead one of us. Well, none of us are dead. Well, yeah. no, we're all alive. We're very alive. <laughs> oh. Thriving, Mifune. actually. Mifune was the greatest Japanese actor who ever lived and globally celebrated actor. Arguably. Who's no, <laughs> no argument. <laughs> you guys can't even name another Japanese actor. <laughs> Chow Yun-Fat. <Boom>. Chinese. <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> he starred in many foreign classics. He's forever linked with legendary director and some would argue the greatest director who has ever lived, Akira Kurosawa. Like I said, I cheated a little bit here because we originally had this as a one director three film episode, but then changed it to a one actor three <laughs> film episode. Gonna, was that also your director? <laughs> no, I picked somebody else, but this was like, this was somebody I was considering. So I wanted to still tie back to a director. So all three of my films are actually Kurosawa films. But if you were to make a list of the greatest actors who've ever lived, Mifune would, would have to be included. He helped make Japanese film accessible in the West and became a legend in his own right, even though many Western audiences have never heard of him. Uh, my first film is the 1963 film High and Low. It's about artificial sweeteners. <laughs> <laughs> Clever. Uh, alternate title is Heaven and Hell. Uh, movies oh. are driven by conflict and dilemma, and High and Low hits the ground running with a fascinating one. Toshiro Mifuni plays Kingo Gondo, a name that does not sound Japanese at all, <laughs> a highly ethical and moral executive at a shoe company who it is quickly established is surrounded by other not-so-ethical executives he is battling as they try to take over the company. He has a plan. And he's he also a samurai? No. Oh. This is set in... Why are we even talking no, about way to, this? Way to racially samurai. profile. That's yeah. A, <laughs> nice. Yeah, all samurais are... Je- <laughs> uh, well, yeah, unless they're Matt Damon. He has a plan. Or he, Tom Cruise. Yeah, shut up. Tom Cruise. He was the last one. Yeah, he was the last one. He has a plan. 
He has raised enough money to buy a controlling share of the company, but on the night he's going to do this, he gets a call from a kidnapper who states he has his son and demands a 30 million yen ransom um, that would destroy Gondo's plans. Without hesitation, Gondo says he'll pay it. But here's where the dilemma enters. At that moment, his clearly unkidnapped son walks in the room, at which point it becomes clear that the kidnappers have got the wrong child and have instead taken Gondo's son's best friend, who happens to be the son of one of their servants. Now Gondo has a problem. He's already said he'd pay it for his son, but will he pay it for the son of his less fortunate servant, putting his company and their thousands of employees at risk? Or does he not pay it and become a public villain, potentially letting a child die? This is the first, like, five minutes of the movie. Yeah. It's How awesome. Have I never it's heard amazing. of this? I don't know. You have this now. I'm terrible. These are the questions that set up the first part of the film, which then quickly shifts into becoming a police procedural movie, where the police start with what appears to be an almost impossible case to solve and slowly begin chipping away at it as they hunt for the kidnapper. It's come up a couple of times recently how much I love watching films where teams must get together and solve seemingly unsolvable problems. It's very pleasurable in a movie to watch a group figure out how to get from point A to point B, and you find out learning so much about how police do what they do. So, for example, one of the strategies they employ when pulling together the ransom money is to put it into a very unique-looking bag. Believing the kidnapper will try to throw it in the water or burn it, they use a bag that lets off a terrible stench when put in water and emits a bright pink smoke when burned. It's a long shot, but it might help them later, and indeed it does. The film Spoiler is, alert. Yeah. The film is filled with little details like that which come together to make for a fascinating story of pursuit, and it culminates in an amazing scene in which, spoiler alert, uh, Gondo has a gut-wrenching conversation with the kidnapper that I absolutely love. Did you did you see this? Yeah. Okay. Uh, which, which, are are which, we going to play the clip? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so learn Japanese real quick. There's, um, there's probably a dubbed version. <laughs> yeah. Um, interesting side note about this movie. It uh, the, re- the release of the film actually led to, this isn't, I shouldn't be laughing at this, but it led to an increase in the number of kidnappings in Japan, including threats against Kurosawa's own daughter. Ironically, one reason he made the film was to inspire tougher sentences on kidnappers, and instead it led to them increasing. Weird. There's a long-awaited remake of this directed by Martin Scorsese and written by David Mamet, Mamet, Mamet. uh, that has been in production hell for years and no huh. one knows if it'll come out or not but, God, but I'd love that yeah, it, yeah it'd be, I was about to say how has this not been remade yet yeah it's a phenomenal film definitely worth checking out it really is I, yeah. I loved this start to finish and it it, it is absolutely Lance's procedural where, uh, wheelhouse it's it just is, like it, it, it gives you every detail of how they solve this and it's and it's brilliant and, and it's, ne- it's never cumbersome it's never yeah. you're right there with them the whole journey yeah. and what's interesting about this I'm sorry to interrupt you no. but Mufune kind of disappears for a lot of the second mm-hmm. half of the film yeah. because what's happened is he he's you know again spoiler alert here but he's done the right thing and now the police are so engaged in helping right this wrong that it becomes as much about the police task force as it does about him yeah there's this, there's this, I don't know how long it is but it's a long bit of procedural police work mm-hmm. where they're just calling on people in like the squad room and people are getting up and reporting back like what's been happening in <laughs> yeah. the case and it's probably 10 minutes long yeah. I, don't know. I mean it's but it's awesome but it's, it's riveting because they're each talking about different elements of the case you're right. like, oh, that must be how that works. Right, right. It's Kurosawa, so it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And just, also long. Yes, long. But the, just the way that he, the, the the way the shots are set up is incredible. And there's a, a, a bit of a proto Schindler's List moment in it. There is, in fact. Uh, with, with the smoke actually being pink, because uh, it's a black and white movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, black and white and pink movie. Um, you guys are spoiling all kinds of stuff. Yeah, but I, I love For this us, movie. They and, didn't know prep and it for the needs show. to be watched. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, I do want to say that from now on, I'd like to be referred to as Kingo Gibbo. <laughs> Please add it to your opening. <laughs> Kyle T. Kingo Gibby. Gibbo. Gibbo. Your 27 Kingo Gibbo. I'm not going to remember that. My actor, 
like all great actors, was born in 1967 in Wisconsin. <laughs> I, I, that seems inaccurate. I think Wilford Brimley was. That's that his like story, a, too. And Hackman, too. <laughs> My actor is Mark Ruffalo. Mark uh, came from blue-collar roots. His father a construction painter and his mother a hairdresser. He struggled with dyslexia and ADD as a kid, and throughout high school, he played bass in a post-hardcore band, rode motorcycles, surfed, and was a star wrestler. Hmm. So much like my own childhood. Hmm. <laughs> and look at where you guys are now. So Mark Ruffalo moved to Los Angeles after high school to pursue acting, um, but ended up bartending for nearly a decade and claims to have gone on over 800 failed auditions before catching his big break, which came when Kenneth Lonergan cast Ruffalo in his 2000 directorial debut, You Can Count on Me. Good movie. Thanks, oh, that Gibby was are we talking about it now? Yes. Affirming yes, that that's are. all true. You Can Count on Me follows single mom Sammy, played by Academy-nominated Laura Linney, who seemingly has it all together, raising her young son, Rudy, on her own in her relationship with her slacker brother, Terry, who returns home after being silent for months looking to borrow money. Terry played by Mark Ruffalo. Hmm. Terry decides to stick around for a while, and Sammy welcomes his help with Rudy, and the film explores the dysfunction between these two siblings, each broken in their own way. Both uh, lost their parents to a car accident when they were young, and so have some tension between the two, the brother and sister. The use of Yo-Yo Ma's recordings of Bach's cello suites creates a very unique and peaceful atmosphere to the movie. Ruffalo's performance rides this balance between charming and bratty. A lot of the humor comes from how he smokes and cusses and treats the eight-year-old Rudy like he's a 20-year-old, like in this scene. Do you like it here? I mean, in Scottsville? Yeah. Why? I don't know. My friends are here. I like the scenery. I don't know. I know, I know. It's just so... There's nothing to do here. Yes, there is. No, there isn't, man. It's narrow. It's dull. It's a dull, narrow town full of dull, narrow people who don't know anything except what things are like right around here. They have no perspective whatsoever, no scope. They might as well be living in the 19th century because they have no idea what's going on. And if you try and tell them that, they want to kill you. What are you talking about? I have no idea. Have you guys seen this movie? Yeah. Nope. I think this is a great movie. It's I saw it at the theater back in college after reading some rave reviews, probably in Entertainment Weekly. Mm. And what this movie does great, and I think, now granted, it's the only of Lonergan's film I've seen. He's only done three from all that I've read with the other two, is that he does a great job of being like super heavy at times and very dramatic, but there's a whole lot of levity in it. Like there's a lot of laughs in the movie. Yeah. And he's just, I think he's a fantastic filmmaker who I wish would make more movies. And I should see more of his movies, actually. This is a movie I probably would have seen by now if I didn't hate the title so much. Yeah, I, I what have, is with I this have title? the same problem. Uh, it I don't just, know. It's it, very odd. It feels like they just took a phrase from a conversation. So like, <laughs> let's make that the title. Yeah. Um, one one piece of trivia I was reading about this is that um, so it was Rory Culkin's first major movie role. They had a hard time getting him to laugh. So Mark Ruffalo would just tickle him to get him to laugh, which oddly enough is a technique we use on this show <laughs> to get people Gibby to laugh. laugh. Or, yeah, to get Gibby to laugh. <laughs> That's at our why jokes. I laugh when I make my voices. Yeah, we're tickling him always so tickling. Much. Yeah. <laughs> It's a movie about family and how oftentimes the problems we have with other people are the same problems we see in ourselves. And it also asks some interesting questions about child rearing as well. I wasn't a father the first time I watched this, but watching it through that lens now really made me question my relationship with my son and how the way that 
we try to raise our children is not always so black and white and how there's always more perspectives that could be of benefit. You describing it makes it sound more interesting. Yeah, to me I want to see than it. The title ever did. Yeah, I'm. You know what? I wonder if that title. I mean, it kind of feels like a a play title. It feels you like know, a Hallmark like a theater, channel. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like if it was called "You Can't Count on Me," yeah. I would be the first one in line to watch it. You cannot count on me. If it was called "Lick My Take Balls," then I would totally see it because it's all edgy. <laughs> Huh. That'd be a weird movie. <laughs> not sure that's be a long uh, two would, hours. Would I mean, it's subversive, uh, man. It's one thing movie. that this was one of the first movies uh, that kind of recast the way you think about Matthew Broderick because he's in this and he plays the uh, the her new boss, yeah. overbearing and yeah, he's just a big a jerk, jerk and he was good in it. Yeah. I like this it's, movie. It a lot. feels like a similar role to Election. Yeah, it actually bit, is yeah. now. When I, when I started my sentence, <laughs> I thought, oh, wait, election was earlier, and so this is all moot. Hmm. So that's a yeah. stupid point. Well, I think though. we all remember that moment when our opinion of Matthew Broderick changed. <laughs> yeah. So it was just different times for different people. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm tickling him right now. By <laughs> Mark Ruffalo is an interesting actor. Out of the three that we picked, he's probably the one with just a huge variance between... Didn't we pick four, four <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Out of the four, sorry, out of the four actors we picked, this between isn't, this like isn't three friends, yeah, out this, film, dude. <laughs> he had the most variance between small films that are really tiny and then just huge big budget films. I think more so than anybody else. Give me number two, Tom Hanks film. Anytime now. You know we're back, right? We're back. So by the year two thousand, tickling him. Tom Hanks had become Tom Hanks. Uh, the underrated actor. <laughs> he wasn't underrated yet. Today. He was properly rated in 2000. Uh, in 2017, he's underrated. Just just come with me. Come with me on this journey you of the year I mean? 2000. Hi, yeah. So he was. Uh, he, he had been Tom Hanks in, in the from the 1990 to 2000. He had won two Academy Awards, been nominated for four, and was widely known as one of our best actors. But in the year 2000, he made a film, or a film was released with him in it, that I think changed at least my perception of of Tom Hanks and what he could do, and that is Castaway. And not only is this one of my favorite Tom Hanks performances, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. So in Castaway... I believe sorry. in your text you said it was arguably in the Gibby Top 10. It yeah, is. The coveted Gibby Top 10. Gibby Top 10. After watching it again yesterday, I don't, I don't think I have any qualms with putting this in my personal Top 10. Do you think this movie is underrated? Yes. Hmm. I do. Gibby, you don't get a uh, Best Sound Academy Award nomination being <laughs> yeah. underrated. It wasn't even nominated for Best Picture. <laughs> It, it lost to Gladiator, and Tom Hanks lost to uh, Russell Crowe this year. And I love Russell Crowe as much as any one man can, but uh, this should have been Tom Hanks. <laughs> as much as man can love another man. <laughs> as much as man can love Tom Hanks. Anyway, huh. Castaway's story is uh, it's a Robert Zemeckis film, and it was made over a two-year period. And Hanks plays Chuck Nolan. We're introduced as he's explaining the importance of time to a bunch of Russians at a FedEx station in Moscow. Who know nothing about time. Yeah, because he puts a clock up there. Yeah, they apparently time. don't know what a clock is. Yeah, no, no idea. This is a clock. That was my Tom Hanks impression. <laughs> that was not very good. <laughs> Chuck, Chuck's your normal workaholic, middle-aged guy. A little pudgy, overworked, but loves his work and loves being busy. So one night, he has to leave his girlfriend's Christmas dinner early because of a work thing. And then his flight gets into a horrific crash. Chuck's the only survivor stranded by himself on a deserted island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and that's a crazy crash scene. I don't I don't really it want is, to talk about the, wild. Yeah. the movie too much, but that is one of the scariest crashes I've ever seen. I think it's movie. one of the scariest scenes in any movie ever. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it feels I, so real. I've I mean, seen it a couple times. I watched it again last night and I was terrified during that part. And I think it's my number one fear. Really? Plane crash? More the the immediately post-crash. 
more the mm. the stuck in a ocean storm in, yeah. a, in a raft mm. by myself. And that scene where he's underwater and he's about to get dragged down because his raft gets caught mm-hmm. and he's terrifying. And it's a really terrifying scene, but it's a really weird word to use, but a really cool scene too. Oh yeah, the way the camera zooms in on his face and comes out mm-hmm. like the camera movement in that scene, I loved it. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, I mean, one thing about Zemeckis, and like I said, I don't want to talk about the movie too much because I have a feeling I'll probably bring it up in another one, the movie itself. Okay, let's move on. Okay. <laughs> but uh, Zemeckis is a technical wizard, and, and this movie, as much as anything he's done, shows it. I just pictured Zemeckis in like a <laughs> yeah. 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 beard. You shall not pass. Is he a technical wizard or is he technically a wizard? <laughs> <laughs> technically, he's a wizard. <laughs> First, what a risk Zemeckis took with this movie and what faith he had in the audience to be able to handle a film where there was just like no dialogue for really long periods of yeah. time. The creative decision he made here is that he didn't take us through the monotony of Hanks learns how to fish or Hanks learns how mm-hmm. to build a house. He makes a jump cut that crosses several years where we go from Hanks the amateur castaway to Hanks the guy who has learned how to survive in this environment. And that's important because had he shown the process of him becoming good at things, it would have distracted from the real story, which is about a guy trying to get home, not a guy learning how to live by himself on an island. Mm -hmm. That scene at the end of Hanks and Helen Hunt reconnecting and just realizing it it wasn't meant to be absolutely slays me every time I see it. So good. But this movie is interesting too because it's also not a downer. It leaves you with a very hopeful ending Mm -hmm. where his life may have taken a drastic turn and he lost someone he loved, but he's got, he's going to start a new chapter after in life. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't leave you just feeling empty and dead inside. It leaves you feeling kind of good and hopeful about everything despite the tragedy this man's been through. Yeah, but yeah. not in, not in a corny, exactly, way. exactly. Corny. In like a very real way. Well, also it doesn't show. It doesn't show like, I fell in love with this woman and right. then blah, blah, blah. It, it doesn't do that. It, he gives, he gives, and I didn't even, I'd forgotten about this until I watched it last night, but that monologue he gives at the end. And I know what I have to do now. You gotta keep breathing. Because tomorrow the sun will rise. Who knows what the tide could bring? And he explains why he why he survived. Mm-hmm. And it's so positive after, I mean, and he's been through the worst things man could be through probably. I mean, not the worst, but there's it's one of the worst things. I mean, becoming Dog the Bounty Hunter is <laughs> is a difficult transition. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to talk about. You guys don't think he looks like Dog the Bounty you. Hunter? Uh, he does I, a little bit. You kind of look like Dog the Bounty Hunter. Oh, there's that totally too. <laughs> yeah. it, you know, when we started this, I asked myself the question, could any other actor have pulled this role off? And Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think they could have with this amount of humanity that Tom Hanks puts in there. Because at the beginning, like the first, I mean, first of all, he carries the movie by himself in 90 minutes. It's just him and volleyball. Well, yeah. I mean, you, you, feel, yeah. you feel he provided, say, 20% more humanity than any other, other actor could I have do. provided. Yeah, if I had to yeah. put percentages on it, at least yeah, 25%. So, so you, don't think, you don't think Rob Zombie could have done it? No. I mean, he's more human than human. <laughs> There's a scene where I think as an actor would be really hard to play. Not that I've acted at all in my life, but there were Tom Hanks is more exposed both literally and figuratively than he ever has is the after Wilson's shot. lost. Mm, yeah, the penis shot. No, after Wilson <laughs> after Wilson falls off the raft and uh, he's lost oh, and man. it just shows yeah. Tom Hanks just sitting there crying mm-hmm. on the raft by himself for like yeah. two minutes and it's heartbreaking. And it's a f- volleyball <laughs> yeah. and you're like so upset yeah. that it's floating away yeah. and he's like apologizing to it he's like yeah. i'm sorry wilson and yeah. you're like oh. yeah. yeah wilson wilson i'm sorry i'm sorry wilson wilson i'm sorry i'm sorry wilson 
Yes, you can. Well done. Well done. It's not a volleyball um, anymore. That's one of the things I hated that came out of this movie is like the kind of spoofy jokes yeah. and stuff about Wilson. And then also all the jokes about what was in the FedEx package. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that speaks to what Lance is saying is about what a risk this movie was, mm-hmm. which I w- watching it last night, like that, that I thought about that a lot. I mean, it is, it was, yeah. So it it's so easy to make fun of, and so therefore so easy to pull apart. And, but it stands regardless as as a really beautiful film. Jordan, number uh, well, some number <laughs> two, some number Numbers film. Two. So director of Castaway, Robert Zemeckis, was originally slated to direct my number two choice, Ooh. but was pulled from the job when his movie Romancing the Stone, which rules, rules. received poor test screening yeah. results. File that under who gives a. Sh- uh, me, the person in charge of this segment. He, Ron Howard did. <laughs> yeah, Ron Howard, obviously. Thanks for giving it Ron away. Ron Howard. <laughs> so anyway, let's rewind the Brimley clock to 1985 when he had one of his biggest roles in Ron Howard's geriatric sci-fi masterpiece, Cocoon. By the way, the Brimley clock only has one setting. It's 55 years old. He was always yeah. 55 years old. Yeah. So you can't really wind it back. Keep going. Well, just another, we wind it back to another year when he was 55. Shirtless Gutenberg. Oh man, so much Gutenberg. That's how I like my Gutenberg. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Brimley plays Ben, one of a gaggle of retirees living in a Florida seniors community. The old dudes trespass to a nearby mansion pool to swim every day. When the mansion is leased by some aliens who use the pool to incubate their cocoons, the old men start to reap the benefits of the aliens' regenerative powers. So really, this is like a Viagra commercial. (laughs) from 1985. Basically, yes. Uh, I liked the poster for this movie that said, Wilford Brimley is Cocoon. Cocoon. I don't remember that poster. (laughs) Wilford Brimley here for Cocoons. (laughs) (laughs) This time around, Brimley plays a loving grandfather, increasingly frustrated with his failing health. He talks about this in one of my favorite scenes. Near the end of the film, as Brimley drives away after a final goodbye to their daughter and grandson before, spoiler alert, leaving Earth. You having second thoughts? Yes. So you think it's like Bernie says, we're cheating nature? Yes. Well, I'll tell you something. The way nature's been treating us, I don't mind cheating her a little. Part of what makes Cocoon so special is that it focuses on aging and death and our failing human bodies in a way that few films do. We sit directly with these elders and experience it with them. Some of the most moving parts of this are with Brimley's character and his grandson. As they go fishing together one last time, and Brimley explains... What's important is that... When we get where we're going, we'll never be sick... We won't get any older and we won't ever die. You're joking me, right? No. No. Would I be able to visit you, Grandma? No. And we wouldn't be able to visit you either, and that kind of bothers me. I'd never see you again? That scene where the kid chases after him, trying oh, to get yeah. him out of the end. It's awesome. It's very Brim- selfish. Does the movie get into that? It raises that question. And, Wilf- and Wilford Brimley here for selfishness. 
<laughs> Brimley slays in these moments, and really, the whole cast shines. Has that sentence ever been uttered? Brimley slays in these moments. I, I just uttered it. Yeah. I like it. But really, the whole cast shines. Even Steve Gutenberg, though yeah. not as brightly as Brian Dennehy. <laughs> wink, wink. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking yeah, about. They, they Brimley was only 50 during the production of this movie. That is insane. <laughs> That's a good 25 years younger than most of his old folk co-stars. Was he at all offended by that? Like, hey, you look about that <laughs> yeah. right that age. Well, n- no, because this is a long-running trend for Brimley as an actor. Here's a quote. I'm never the leading man. I never get the girl. And I never get to take my shirt off. I started by playing father to guys who were 25 years older than I was. This is one of my favorite movies, too. And I feel it is maybe one that gets overlooked in the kind of... It does. Amblin-ish it's kind of type disappeared of, yeah. a little bit, which mm-hmm. is unfortunate. You couldn't find it anywhere. Right? Yeah, it is hard to find. Um, HBO streaming. Oh, is it? Really? Yeah. Yes. Huh. The one thing I love about this movie is I feel like in different hands, this script would have been three like wacky 80s comedians, mm-hmm. you know, find... Um, it would have been like grumpy old man. life. Well, what I was going to say was the fact that they made it about old people and mm-hmm. the fact that the, you're, the, the main characters are all in their 70s. Well, Wilford Brimley's playing 70 <laughs> very convincingly. They did dye his hair a little. That it's something that you don't, you didn't see in that time. You still don't see. I mean, you don't see movies about old people, but the, the content of this movie, that's what it was about. And you couldn't have explored these ideas with the younger cast. Yeah. Jordan, you bring up a good point. As a kid, this movie, I loved it, but it really disturbed me, but it was, it was kind of the first movie I remember saying it was really about like mortality. Oh, yeah. And that was very jolting to me as a mm-hmm. kid, but it, I mean, it provides this hopeful answer to it, which is this eternal life thing. Mm-hmm. And as a kid, I remember it drove me crazy that we don't get to see where they go yeah me that, too. like that drove really me insane too. i wanted to so bad see the home planet of yeah. these aliens yeah. we'll talk real quick too about the, the the score to this film it's one of the underrated film scores you see it you you hear it in trailers sometimes yeah. mm-hmm. but this is such a wonderful wonderful music When you think of the Ron Howard movies, this doesn't come to mind for me right. at all. In Wait, fact, I, I forgot he did this until I was just looking at your screen, Gibby. Ron Howard. Not, not, Ron not Howard when I talked about how <laughs> Ron Howard yeah, did this movie. I kind of tune you out in these things. <laughs> it, it's a little different for Ron Howard. It's a, he's a very populist film director, if that makes you sense. Those his politics? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is just kind of an outlier in the Ron Howard filmography, I would say. You think so? It kind of fits, though. No, I think I it think. feels... I guess he it's changed in his second half of yeah. his career, but at this time it felt Well, before it, he did Splash, and then after it was like... Ho, so these are kind of hmm. I don't think he'd done a sci-fi type movie before he actually I, I read a quote where a couple years before he made this he said he would never make a sci-fi movie because yeah. what he was interested in was characters and, and so their relationships Interesting. and that uh, and then I guess this script came and it, it worked I think for him one of the reasons why it may be forgotten too is that there was a terrible sequel that came out Courtney Cox is in the sequel Getting right worse. after his Dancing in the Dark video <laughs> Speaking of Courtney Cox, how about uh, Tishore Mifuni? Good segue. <laughs> <laughs> My number two film is Rashomon, the 1950 Akira Kurosawa film. Shortly before production of Rashomon began, Kurosawa's three assistant directors came to him complaining they did not understand the script. The studio head disliked it so much that he took his name off it, also believing it to be incomprehensible. Well, suck it, Japanese studio executives. <laughs> because Rashomon went on to win the Golden Line at the Venice Film Festival en route to winning the Oscar for Best Foreign Film. It's credited with opening the door 
for Japanese films into the West and is often cited as the greatest Japanese film ever made and among the greatest of all films. Isn't that funny too? Because isn't there a repeated line in the beginning over and over again where a character is like, I don't understand this. I don't understand this. I've never seen it. I don't know. Oh, I'm just kidding. Oh, you should watch it sometime. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good movie. So why the confusion? Rashomon tells the story of a murder of a samurai and the rape of his wife. The crime is recounted from four different perspectives, none of which agree, and this is essentially the point. Kurosawa was trying to make a statement about the nature of truth and how it can often vary depending on who you ask, hence the confusion. Each story makes perfect sense to the witness who is recounting it, but to the viewer we see contradictions that seem insurmountable. And this was a very revolutionary thing at the time. We often look at film as the ultimate arbiter of truth in the story we're watching, that what the camera is showing us is what actually happened and it will get to the bottom of reality. But Kurosawa suspends that here, showing us things that may have happened, but we can't be sure, a device that would later influence films such as Courage Under Fire and The Usual Suspects. And many films that that give us perspectives on a single event without telling us what really, quote unquote, happened. Roger Ebert included the film in his great movies list where he said, the genius of Rashomon is that all of the flashbacks are both true and false. True in that they present an accurate portrait of what what each witness thinks happened. False because as Kurosawa observes in his autobiography, human beings are unable to be honest with themselves about themselves. They cannot talk about themselves without embellishing. Uh, One thing I love is when a film right out of the gate builds anticipation for what's coming. And Rashomon is one of the best examples of that, which we see two men, a priest and a woodcutter, sitting in the shelter from the rain at the Rashomon Gate in Kyoto. A commoner runs in from the rain and joins them and sees that they are both so troubled they can barely speak. He asks them what's wrong and they inform him about the crime. The priest then says, I've seen so many men getting killed like insects, but even I have never heard a story as horrible as this. Yes, so horrible. This time I may finally lose my faith in the human soul. It's worse than bandits, the plague, famine, fire, or wars. And I love putting a line like that right at the start of a film because it just sucks you in immediately as you're dying to hear the story. Worse than bandits? Yeah, Hudson. It's easy to look at this as a... <laughs> I feel like there should have been more to that. Just kind of stop. Uh, it's easy to look at this as a critique on the idea of absolute truth, but I don't really view it that way. To me, it's more a film about the subjectivity of man, how our own biases creep into our viewpoints on nearly everything and make otherwise intelligent, honest people disagree on things. I've tried to watch this movie several times and really enjoyed it, but fallen asleep every time, which <laughs> cool. is really disappointing because what I've seen of it yep. is awesome. Well, that's the end of that segment. <laughs> I, 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 watched it, I watched it in film class in college mm. on uh, Laserdisc. Oh, yeah, wow. This one's Wow. wow. So minutes. it stopped halfway through and he had to flip it over. <laughs> I forgot you had to do that with laser discs. Yeah. Did you really? That's yeah, you had to flip them over. How old are they're, you they're guys? like records. <laughs> they're like the exact same You're, as you. <laughs> young, I'm younger than you? <laughs> no, it's, a, it's a great pick. I, I can't say that I remember much about Toshiro Mifune's character in the film. But well, Mifune really in, this, in this film plays the bandit. Um, and he's kind of, he, he throughout his career, he play, he would, especially early in his career, he would play these really like wily, crazy, as he, as he does in my next film, characters. And then as he got older, he settled down a lot. He became the more straight-laced in, in High and Low, for example. He plays an executive. Yeah. So as he aged, his roles calmed down as he got older. But yeah, it, I'm not surprised you watched this in a film class because this is a total film professor type mm. movie. And it really did play with how movies interact with reality. I mean, like I was saying, it, it deals with that idea that, you know, when you're watching a story, you take for granted everything that you're seeing right there is, oh, that's what happened. I'm supposed to accept that as truth. And this was really the first film that kind of messed with that idea a little bit and kind of cut that line between what's happening on the screen and what's actually true. And in that regard, it, it, you know, it's something that we take for granted now. But at the time, you know, like I said, the studio executive took his name off of it. The, the, the people making the film didn't understand it. People didn't quite know what to do with it at the time. And so in that regard, it was very cutting edge and ahead of its its era. Mm, I'm into that. I'll you try to watch it again sometime. You guys have given me a lot so. to think about tonight. Yeah, it's short. Oh, good. It's only 88 minutes. We can watch it after we record this. Perfect. Watch it right now. Take a short break. Yeah. Wilford Brimley here for Rashomon. <laughs> there you go. <laughs>
<laughs> you want to question the nature of truth, try Rashomon. That's worse than bandits. It's worse than diabetes. All righty. Thanks to the success of You Can Count On Me, Mark Ruffalo was being called the next big thing and had a lot of big offers on the table. In fact, he was cast in the Joaquin Phoenix role in Signs, but unfortunately was diagnosed with a walnut-sized benign tumor in his brain. Which Ooh. was diabetes. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, let's make fun of, of tumors. <laughs> yeah, Lance. tumors are hilarious, huh. Lance. Neither is diabetes, jerk. <laughs> what is when you say it like that? It's good because he's the spokesman for diabetes. Yeah, he's made it hilarious. <laughs> what if he doesn't even have diabetes? <laughs> he made it America's favorite joke. He, yes. he does. He has Sorry, to this is a little for Brimley yeah, segment. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I told you he's in yeah. the so he I mean, it was like cancer? Non-cancerous, so benign tumor, but he saw it have it removed. And this was two weeks after the birth of his first son. Ooh. He had the tumor removed, but it left him with one side of his face paralyzed. He was never sure that Phelan would come back. I and mean, as a result, he had to give up acting for an entire year. In the one time frame most important for him to cash in on his success, wow. so that by the time the paralysis had subsided, he had passed on all these film roles. I can't imagine going a year without acting. Did he go back to bartending? I no, act he, every day I mean, for at least an hour. Right? You're acting like an a-hole right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for the last hour. So he worked his way back up to working steadily in smaller roles and the occasional rom-com. And then in 2000 eight, his brother Scott was found murdered. Wow. Revelis says, I'd never taken a job purely for money. I felt like that would kill me, but I was afraid that I was heading that way. Then my brother passing away was the final thing that kicked me over. It reminded me that life is short and you'd better do what you want while you have a chance. So, Ruffalo got rid of his agent, his publicist, sold his LA apartment, and moved with his family of five to upstate New York, surrounded by farmers and blue-collar workers who have no idea who he is. And it was during this period in his life that he got the script for 2010's The Kids Are Alright. Hang on, why did he do that? Did he always want to be a farmer? No, he just wanted to get away from oh, LA and that it. world and find something, you know, not raise his kids around Hollywood. The Kids Are Alright, co-written and directed by Lisa, I'm really going to mess up this name, do Lisa Chilodinko. <laughs> so, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's right. I think the, I think the CH is not a ch. I think Co- the H is silent. Kolodinko? How do you guys know? I think it's Kolodinko. That sounds right. Uh, the movie follows Nick and Jules, a married lesbian couple who both had kids by the same sperm donor. Now that their daughter Joni is 18, she legally has a right to find out who their biological father is. So, pushed by her brother Laser, who apparently was named after an American gladiator. Yeah, there was one. Oh. He was kind of hard to take seriously with a name like Laser. <laughs> yeah. So they contact the donor, who turns out to be the super cool bohemian motorcycle driving farm-to-table restaurant owning Paul, played by Mark Ruffalo. Wilfer Brimley for sperm donership. <laughs> if you're not they sure, Wilfer Brimley play this role. If you're not, how their dad is Wilfer Brimley. If you're not sure what to do with your, <laughs> consider donating it. You from my seed? <laughs> Make that seed count, Wilfer Brimley. Uh, so Paul having reached a point where he's tired of his bachelor lifestyle clearly is drawn to his new instant family but ultimately the movie is about what makes a marriage and family work over time 20 years in that answers don't come from anything instant Jules played by Julianne Moore says in the movie it's no big secret your mom and I are in hell right now and um, bottom line is marriage is hard it's really f-ing hard. Just, just two people slogging through the f-ing year after year, getting older, changing. It's a f-ing marathon, okay? So sometimes, you know, you're you're together so long that you just you stop seeing the other person. You just see weird projections of your own junk. Um, instead of 
instead of talking to each other, you go off the rails and act grubby and make stupid choices, which is what I did. And, and I feel sick about it because I love you guys and I love your mom. And that's the truth. Sometimes you hurt the ones you love the most. I don't know why. The movie does have a lot of laughs, but it's so intimate and real at the same time. Ruffalo was nominated for Best Supporting Actor in the film for Best Picture. Is that right? Yep. Um, and Wait, Ruff- it was this his movie first- was nominated for Best Picture? It was his yes. first nomination. Yep. So Ruffalo says, I played the part as an homage to my brother. I knew as soon as I read it that I could do it in such a way as to celebrate the best of him. He had the same kind of openness as Paul, his character. He was very open with his sexuality and accepting of his own shortcomings, and women adored him. He was just a fantastically beautiful, fun guy, and it was a joy to do i loved this movie i watched it last week and i'd always wanted to see it and finally didn't it, it's it's really remarkable yeah like it's about relationships and every single one of the relationships is fascinating to me both specifically each relationship and as a whole how all the relationships work together and i thought it was done so well there's a scene where <laughs> they the two moms are confronting laser about <laughs> how they think that he he might be gay and they're telling him that it's okay yeah. and they end up going off on this tangent about lesbian porn and one of the moms is saying oh well Laser, they don't Laser. watch lesbian porn they only watch gay porn right so yeah. and Laser found that out so he he has this question which is why do you watch gay porn and they're, they're like well lesbian porn a lot of times it's not lesbians it's two straight women playing pretending to be lesbians and and that's what the movie is right which, yeah which is really interesting to me and i couldn't figure out if that was an authentic moment or if that was like, like i mean obviously it's not a little bit i mean it had to have been yeah i thought you were going to say they confront laser because they're concerned he's an american gladiator <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, you ever watch gladiator movies? <laughs> I, I did. <laughs> I did think that so Lily and I watched this together and and at the end really we kept pausing it and talking about Ruffalo's character and and deciding whether he was likable whether Mm -hmm. he was actually cool whether we as an audience were supposed to like him and I thought that was fascinating because he he's very much himself I don't mean Ruffalo but he's very much just who he wants to be he's I guess middle age and is sleeping around and and doing all this but so at the end I kind of felt like he got cheated because I felt like he was a really good dude and that he wasn't the ultimate bad guy in it and he was getting kind of a raw deal by his well the point the point was he was trying to get that family to fill a void in his life right right well so i thought he was getting cheated a little bit and lily was like well but that's the point like he's insignificant yeah he's just the sperm donor and i thought that was exactly right and and a really fascinating point to make with the movie not that men are pointless but that he's just he wasn't part of their family yeah great movie Gibby, your number one Tom Hanks <laughs> film. Okay. If you know Gibby, you already know what this is. <laughs> you got a so, friend in me. I had a really you hard time picking the three movies for Tom Hanks because he's had eighty-seven apparently. Yeah, eighty-seven credits on IMDb. A lot of those are little shorts or just uh, cameos. He's been a cameo. He, a lot he of does movies. wear he's little shorts in Castaway, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite Tom Hanks performance is Toy Story. Huh. Story. Is that a Pixar That's movie? It. Let's go on. Yeah. Huh. Uh, yeah. Uh, we could really fill a whole episode. There's so much we could say about this yeah. movie. I mean, I just picked this one for Tom Hanks because I think it's the quintessential Tom Hanks performance. Yeah. He's the Hanksiest. Yeah, I think Woody's got charm and wit and a sense of decency that, that some of the best Tom Hanks has and that it seems like he does in his life. Uh, but then there's also a little bit of a charming arrogance to Woody as well. I think it's just Woody's Tom Hanks personified in uh, animated form. And I, I think this is, for Tom Hanks, the best fit of actor to character. Woody does... A couple of things here that to me are my favorite Tom Hanks bits. One is him laughing where he like laughs until he can't like yeah. make a noise anymore. It's like <laughs> <laughs> ah! 
one. The other one is him just yelling. Like Tom Hanks yelling is the, my great, favorite thing. It's great. You are a toy. You weren't the real Buzz Lightyear. You're a, you're an action figure. You are a child's plaything. Yeah. Which I mean, maybe only the Burbs is better than Toy Story in terms of Tom Hanks yelling. Oh, and maybe uh, a league of their own. Money pit. I wish that yeah, Tom Hanks was my dad, him. and I would like piss him off all the time just to get <laughs> him to yell at me yes. like that. That is a mean thing for a kid to do. <laughs> His voice is so distinctive. Toy Story is an interesting movie because, quick film history here, Snow White was the first full-length animated feature film back in uh, 1937, and when it came out, people were blown away by what a technical achievement it was, and it was one of those rare moments in film history where the literal film itself was as captivating as the story and what the film was conveying. And when we as audiences watch Snow White now, that's lost on us because animated film has become, become so commonplace. Toy Story was another moment like that as it was the first CGI feature-length film and younger or future audiences will watch it and not be able to fully appreciate what a big deal it was to be sitting in a theater in 1995 and watching something that was really unlike anything you'd ever seen before. Had this just been the first CGI film, it would have been a historical footnote that would be forgotten, but it hasn't been forgotten because it's a combination of technical innovation and story innovation. Pixar doesn't just throw cool visuals at you. They went back to the drawing board of how stories are told and solidified stories structure, which was desperately needed in Hollywood at the time and still kind of is. Yeah, I, I love this movie. Yeah. I have a TV VCR in my office and, and I have this on VHS and I sometimes I just put it in to yeah. listen it's to fun. it while yeah, I work. It's good background work. It's great. It's such a great movie. John Lasseter always wanted Tom Hanks to play the character of Woody. Huh. He claimed that Tom Hanks had the ability to take emotions and make them appealing. Thanks, Internet. Even if the character is down and out despicable. And that's one thing that's pretty interesting about Woody is he does some very despicable he's, things yeah. in the movie. But, but you still love him. But Not as despicable as he's made to look like he did, but yeah. pretty they, But also they're understandably despicable things because you understand what he's going through. Yeah. So that helps a lot and yeah. keeps him likable. I, I think Hanks had a lot to do with it. This Wally and The Incredibles have always been kind of my like holy triumvirate of Pixar films. Like to me, those are just the three. I mean, everybody has Finding Nemo is great, Monsters Inc. They're all great films, but this one to me is so great because it kind of kicked the whole thing off. It just I don't know. It just set the like you said, it set the tone for everything that was going to come afterwards, and it just gave us a taste of what was kind of to come. Miss Williams' economics class the first week after uh, in, in the second that semester. Is or what you're talking about? <laughs> I don't even gone. know who that is. She yeah. asked, "What was the favorite movie you I saw over the Christmas break?" And both Lance and I answered, "Toy Story." Mm, I wouldn't have said that in public. <laughs> you said Toy Story. Probably not. Gibby's mm, he got a rock solid memory. He does. He's probably right. <laughs> I think I was going somewhere else. That was that, that was. A, you know how you have like those years where a movie becomes like the movie of that year for you. It's kind of like the thing you remember when you think back to that year. That was 1995 and sto- Toy Story for me. Hmm. Yeah, Tom Hanks. Watch his movies, guys. They're good. They are. They are. Yeah, why don't they you guys are know good. Who Tom Hanks Who's is? arguing with you? <laughs> Who are you debating? <laughs> the world, because he's not getting nominated anymore, and it's a shame. Jordan, number three. Well, Your number dumb. three, Wolford Brimbley movie. <laughs> so Randy Newman did the music for Toy Story, Here and one go. of the one of the songs that Randy Newman did is called "Strange Things." Strange things, and, and the lyrics <laughs> terrible. The lyrics just so happen to perfectly describe my number one pick. Huh. <laughs> I was on top of the world, living high. It was right in my pocket. I was living the life. Things were just the way they should be. When from out of the sky, like a bomb, comes a little punk in a rocket. Mm. Now all of a sudden, some strange things are happening to me. Mm. I had friends. I had lots of friends. Now all my friends are gone. And I'm doing the best I can to carry on. Because they died in the space station in Arca. <laughs> 
Are you doing Bill Cosby doing Wolf of No, that was a Randy Newman. In 1982, one of the greatest ensemble films, special effects films, monster movies, and Wilford Brimley performances bombed spectacularly at the box office. Really? Yep. This movie was John Carpenter's reimagining of the 1951 film The Thing from Another World. It's about a group of men working at a scientific outpost in Antarctica who are infiltrated by a shape-shifting alien creature. Well, you remember the uh, poster for this movie. I don't. Will you remind me? I was um, about to. Wilford Brimley is the, the thing. thing. <laughs> hmm. Well, don't remember that. But it bombed so hard, in fact, that Carpenter was fired from his next job, which was directing Stephen King's Firestarter. Rebert had this to say about The Thing. The Thing is a great barf bag movie, but is it any good? I found it disappointing. The Thing is basically just a geek show, a gross-out movie in which teenagers can dare one another to watch the screen. I, of course, disagree with Rebert here, big time, and I'm not alone. The Thing is now a bona fide cult classic and revered by audiences all over the world. Even Rebert's own website has heaped praise on the film recently. The Thing is incredibly bleak and even pessimistic, a sharp contrast with another alien movie that opened in theaters only two weeks before, E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Bit different. Yeah, a little different. It's often argued that this timing played a major factor in The Thing's poor performance. Mm. The Thing also opened the same weekend as Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, another sci-fi masterpiece. Even if the wow. That's a crazy weekend. It's a bad luck. It's a crazy yeah. month. Even if the original theatrical version of Blade Runner is pretty terrible. But the bleakness and pessimism is a big part of The Thing's strength, raising fascinating questions about safety, trust, endurance, the fight to survive, and sacrifice. Brimley's role is as Dr. Blair, the team's biologist, his portrayal of a terrified, paranoid scientist willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for the survival of humanity is a peak in Brimley's career. However, Brimley's feelings about the movie are contradictory, varying between, I thought the thing stunk, it's just about rubber and steam, and that the effects were too much and stole the imaginations of the audience. Is it about those two things at all? That's what he said. <laughs> uh, so all that and him praising very, very different experience. Him praising Carpenter as a director and saying the movie was quote unquote really good. Wilford Brimley here for contradictions. <laughs> Brimley's biologist is allowed a great range in this performance. After he realizes the immensity of the threat the thing poses, he freaks out, smashes the communication devices with an axe in what seems like a nod to another cold, villainous, isolated horror film, The Shining. You think that thing wanted to be an animal? No dog make it a thousand miles to the coast. Okay, Blair. Come on, man. You don't want to hurt anybody. I'll kill you. As some folks may have concluded after hearing many of the picks I've picked over the episodes of this podcast, I love movies about paranoia, groupthink, mob mentality, and the corruptive nature of these things in an ensemble setting. This movie is easily in my favorites of this kind. As much as I'm in love with John Carpenter's Halloween, I actually think that The Thing is my favorite of all his films and his greatest work, and with a phenomenal Wilford Brimley performance to boot. And so I encourage you, and I think Brimley would too, to watch The Thing. After all... It's the right thing to do. Uh, you can't talk about this movie without talking about the poster. It's arguably the greatest poster. poster. Well, not in a joke. <laughs> but, 
Uh, it's arguably uh, Drew Struzan was is kind of a legendary poster artist. Mm-hmm. He's done so many of the great. I mean, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Goonies. I mean, a lot of the great poster Back to the Future. And this is arguably his his best work. I would. I, would, I mean, obviously we can't show it to you on a podcast, but I would definitely recommend going online and looking at it. Yeah, it's it's so awesome. It is amazing. And it's work. oddly, it's the only. This is one of the few films when I think about it, I think about the poster more than the film. And I don't mean that as an insult really? to the film because I, the film's great. Yeah, there's some something about that look of that poster that just uh, just sucks you in. I don't yeah, know. it's awesome. I mean, I, th- I think most people feel like the thing that they think about this over the actual movie is the special effects, which they were done by a guy named Rob Bottin, who was 22 when is they started that this right? project. Yeah, which is insane. And they are some of the most beautiful sculptures yeah. and, and just insane images. It's so disgusting, but it's so great. Yeah, you know? it, and I, I think it was distracting for a lot of critics, mm. and I think that's why it was panned a lot of times when it first came out was because people were just distracted by how gross it is it's it's very overwhelming the first time you first time you see it gibby have you seen it i have i own it that's great because it was on those two things don't always line up <laughs> no, no they don't they we, usually we don't know, we know you own any <laughs> yeah. movie we bring uh, up. We just... i watched it in college because i was going to tell you that you should definitely see it because it's entertainment weekly's 12th scariest film of all time oh, wow, wow. I, yeah, I didn't really find it, it that scary uh, when i liked it i thought it was a beautiful looking film but it was it would have been better with tom scary. hanks yeah. in it <laughs> He's underrated. Uh, playing the thing. Yeah, I saw this after you suggested it to me, Jordan, oh, uh, a couple cool. years ago, I think. And I loved it. I thought this was so much fun. This, and this isn't normally my... There's some sweet spot for me where it's like I'm not into horror, but when it's kind of horror adventure mm-hmm. or, you know, it has a sense of fun to it. Then well, I Harry Potter's in it, it so, so it was definitely it's not true. related to you. It's probably before he was born. <laughs> Funny tidbit, this came out in 1982 before computers were really big, but there are... No, they, no, were, they were actually really big. Right, right. They were very big. Before they were small <laughs> enough to go in our homes. Yeah. But there are uh, two characters, one named Mac and the other named Windows. Is that right? Which oh, is that's... pure coincidence, but absolutely hilarious. It seems huh. not, like, not coincidence. Why would you name a character Windows? Well, interesting story about that, actually. He had a, an actual name, and the, the actor came to, to John Carpenter while they were rehearsing. He said, uh, I want everybody to call my character windows and john carpenter was like okay i guess and I that guess that's actor fine. was bill gates <laughs> <laughs> lance you're number one toshiro mafuni fune mafune mafuni seven samurai 1954 film again by akira kurosawa comes in with a stunning 8.7 on the imdb rating scale and is ranked number 19 on their top 250 as well as being included on many critics greatest films lists list it's arguably kurosawa's most beloved film and it is his favorite of his own films do you think kurosawa gets at an 8.5? 7. I was going to do a Kurosawa impression and then I realized there's no way to do it without being totally <laughs> offensive. So, uh, This tells the story of um, seven samurai who are enlisted to help protect a local village from wild bandits. Critic Michael Jett called this the first film ever about a team assembled to carry out a mission. And as that's a trope that I personally love, huh. this film resonates heavily with me. Huh, this is the first film to do that? Mm-hmm. According to Michael Jack. That seems hardly possible. It's been remade many times, including The Magnificent Seven, and is credited for its heavy influence over Western films, including Star Wars. And it is actually George Lucas's favorite film. So take that for what it's worth. It is like George Lucas. I mean, it is one of the greatest films ever made. Uh, You see things in it that are very familiar in modern films. It's often been called the first action movie. And other than Citizen Kane, I can't really think of a more influential film. This is very much a film about social roles and the nature of duty. About laying your life... (laughs) Gross. Why wasn't this your number two? (laughs) Zing? 
<laughs> about laying down your life for others when there is no reward in it. And we are frequently reminded of the code of samurai that discuss, that's discussed and debated throughout the film. Each team member has a role to play. The wise old master, the quiet craftsman, the devoted and obedient student, among others. Mifuni's role is that of the young, cocky, gifted, but reckless warrior. He's the comedic relief, but he's also an incredibly underconfident man in need of direction. He fits in perfectly with his group and helps balance things out cinematically, becoming a quirky but necessary character as the team unifies to accomplish their goal. One of the interesting things to me about this movie is what a great job it does keeping us up with what a difficult task the Seven Samurai are up against and walking us through the strategy they use to defeat a much larger force. This isn't just throw a bunch of people on a battlefield and have the good guys win because they're awesome. Kurosawa carefully thought out how this would actually work and how a force of seven guys against a force of 40 could realistically win this battle. As the battle begins, we see one of the characters keeping a literal tally of how many of the enemies have been killed, which makes this so much more engaging because it's not just a giant melee of people. It's like watching a, a game or a sporting event where we know the exact score, which helps pull us in even further. I wish sports were like this. Yeah, I had a feeling you'd have a little comment sports there. Sports are like that. The other thing I love about this film is that it's not afraid to kill its protagonists. Uh, keeping with the authenticity of it, Kurosawa knew people we'd come to love would get killed, and he didn't hesitate to allow that in the story, which is critical in raising the, the stakes and giving the poignant ending that it does. I've only seen half of this because I tried to watch it. First half, second half, middle half? Only the first half, so I only got to about three and a half samurai. <laughs> <laughs> this movie has one of my favorite lines in it of all time. I don't know why that's funny. Pronounce it like because they do I in the movie. Because I want you to do the Japanese. Yeah, do it in Japanese. No, what if he happen. just did that and we're all like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Listeners are like, what? Your head is on the block and all you think of is your whiskers, hmm. which I think is so brilliant. That's a cool line. Got to be honest, I don't get it. Yeah, I don't either. It's saying you're worried about something that's not going to matter in a few uh, minutes. Right. Small thing. Because your head's going to get cut off right. and well, you're worried about, about your, your, your beard. Your beard. Well, it makes sense because you know if that's the last thing people are going to see of you, you want to look good. All right, you know what? Maybe this movie's not for everyone. It's just for me and you, Lance. <laughs> Gibby, what I like is I'm looking at your computer right now, and uh, what the movie you have up is Lance's, not Gibby's Seven computer, Samurai. Computer report. Yeah. <laughs> Gibby's computer report. The Blind Swordsman, Zatoichi, which is not the movie we're talking about. I guess you just pulled up the first Samurai movie that came up. I was looking at movie connections for Seven Samurai, and then The Blind Swordsman came up, and I was like, oh, I've heard of that movie. This is probably better than Lance's three-hour This film. will help me in Lance's segment. <laughs> Uh, it is pretty long, and it takes a long time to uh, get going. I feel it's like it's so long; mm -hmm. it's three and a half hours. But but it yeah, it does meticulously go through the situation the villagers are in, the forming of the team, all of the personalities on the team, bringing them to the village, and and helping them set up what they're facing and what they're up against. It's three and a half hours long, but it, it feels like I was kind of torn it feels in this like film. Three and a quarter. No, I was conflicted whether it needed to be that long. And Jordan, I don't know if you have an opinion on that. I, I part of me felt like they really could have edited a lot of this out, but then part of me wondered if it would have been as great if they had edited it out. I'm really kind of torn on that. If you can allow yourself to get fully immersed in it, I think it absolutely works at three and a half hours. Well, part of it is there's a lot of characters to keep up with, so that might have been just giving time to at least, yeah. get at least to seven. And I think that you're supposed to feel just this like incessant Dread. attacking from, I mean, not that that's all it is, but there's this great part in the first two hours somewhere where they have to sacrifice a part of the village that's across the river. Mm. An editor could look at that and be like, eh, that's not this isn't really the meat but to me that part like meant a lot to me of, of like sacrificing a little for the for the greater good of the whole village and i mean just take three and a half hours and watch it and you should and it, the thing about this movie and i need to be honest with the listener this is a movie where you feel the length of it mm -hmm. hi <laughs> but but it is it, it, it's a, a lot of, there are a lot of long films like you take like a movie like schindler's list that movie zips by to me 
Like, I, I don't feel like it's a super long movie. But this one, you feel like you're sitting there watching. Mm-hmm. You, you, you feel it. I mean, it's it goes on for a while. That doesn't mean it's not rewarding, but it's definitely something you got to be kind of mentally prep yourself for. It's really selling this. I would love to see it in a theater. Have you ever seen it in the theater? I never have. Let's make that happen sometime. Okay. <clears throat> we'll go find a theater. Just make them <laughs> play it. Alrighty. My number one. Mark Ruffalo's next big leap was that of Superstar. After being cast by one. Joss Whedon for 2012's Avengers. You can tell that Ruffalo is never doing it for the paycheck, even when he's playing the Incredible Hulk. Feels that he like he's plucked out of an indie, and you get the feeling that uh, him being a dad played a big part in his current choices. But, since that we'll get to that movie at another time, probably, I want to talk about another big budget action movie Ruffalo starred in. Now you see me. Wish I hadn't. <laughs> Ta-da! Now you see me looking incredulous that you picked this as a Mark Ruffalo film. It doesn't feel like a Mark Ruffalo film. It no. kind of doesn't. He's in it. It hardly feels yeah. like a film. He's a, oh. he's a major oh. point in it. Is this the part where we really fight about film? Yeah, you guys, bring it on. Did you guys right. hate it? We haven't really no, thought about it okay. uh, in this in this he episode yet, it. so oh, let's go for it. You guys um, liked it? You haven't seen it. I've seen it. Oh, you now liked you it. S- I didn't hate it. Yeah. It's like, we'll get like into magic it. We'll get into it. Let it's a team coming yeah. together. Let me man. set it up. Let me set it up. Uh, yeah. Now You See Me is a far cry from You Can Count On Me and The Kids Are All Right, but it's a movie that we rarely see today. An original, big-budget action-adventure, not based on a toy line or a comic book, not a reboot or a sequel, just a really cool, high-concept. I did like that about it. Magicians yep. Who Rob Banks. Ruffalo plays FBI agent Dylan Rhodes as he hunts down the Four Horsemen, a group of four magicians who, as part of their act, steal from the rich and give to the poor. Can we, sorry, can we clear something up? They are not magicians. They are illusionists. Illusionists. What's a magician? Somebody who does a lot cooler stuff than what these people Someone do. Someone who does magic? <laughs> like Copperfield. Like Harry Potter? Harry Potter. Well, no, Copperfield's well, an illusion. Robert, 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 Robert Zemeckis. <laughs> 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 they, they're supposed to be illusionists. An illusionist, I think. Michael. I think they're supposed to be illusionists. That, that, the people who do that sort of quote-unquote magic are illusionists. They're magicians. No, they're not and magicians. Each of, the, uh, each of the set pieces are so much fun, pulling one over on the audience much like the ending of Ocean's Eleven, but over and over again. The movie even features a card trick where they ask the movie audience to pick a card and then show the card on screen. It's an easily explained trick, but still made me gasp in watching it for the first time in the theater. (gasps) (laughs) What other movie did you gasp Uh, Each of the illusionists has a skill set from hypnotism to escapology, a word which I googled, to sleight of hand to showmanship, and the movie makes uses of these skill sets throughout, including one of my favorite scenes where Ruffalo is chasing Dave Franco's character using curtains, handcuffs, pickpocketing, flash paper, and throwing cards as weapons. Throw in a little secret society mystery, and it's a fun, twisty, turny caper. Who wants to destroy it first? I I don't know how well I'm going to destroy it. I just, I felt like this movie was tailor-made for tweens getting dropped off at the getting dropped off at the movie theater on Saturday night like that's what it felt like to me there's nothing wrong with that except that I guess I'm not a tween and either are you I feel like none of that cast is aimed at tweens I feel like I disagree I think I disagree I mean yes it's big action adventure and that's normally aimed at that age group but it's certainly it's not Transformers I never saw Transformers but it's 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 pretty clean it's got actors known by parents so look I mean this isn't a film that's going to be studied in film schools one day but it, it is it is fun escapism and i think i think your point jordan this was one thing that annoyed me about it and i think this might be what you're getting at the magician characters are, are kind of annoying in it oh like they're definitely. all too like man i'm smarter than like they're so like cocky and yeah. snarky and that's, like they, that's what illusionists they, are they kind of got on my nerves well, yes so th- i think that's definitely part of it I, I think my main problem with it was that i love illusionist stuff and mm-hmm. magic stuff i think and as annoying as chris angel and david blaine and 
David Copperfield are. I love watching those specials. I love mm-hmm. all that stuff. And I wanted this movie to feel like that, and it didn't to me huh. at all. It felt like CGI and stuff that, that those people can't actually do. There's some scene where the, some the girl like, is, throws some, some scarf yeah, and the yeah, scarf yeah. Like, does it, and she's floating in a bubble. Yeah. And it was just like, why can't we ground this a little bit? Which is a funny thing to say about an illusionist movie. I agree but, with that. Yeah. But I, I wanted it to feel too. like that plus the, the crime aspect and, and a real story. And I think then it could have been awesome. So yeah. in a way, my, my distaste for this is really based in disappointment from a, a lost opportunity that I think that they... Well, surprised me how... From how, being such a Chris Angel fan... Yeah, magic is a topic that's so fitting for film, and yet we've had so few good movies about it. Mm-hmm. I think of the Prestige is maybe the best Illusionist one. Illusionist was pretty good. Yeah, Illusionist. that was it. There were two that came out at the same yeah, time. That's right. Uh, <laughs> what's the the Steve Carell one? Jim Carrey and Steve Carell. Yeah, incredible. Burt Wonderstone. Burt Wonderstone. Yeah, it, it was terrible. bad. Yeah. I also wanted to point out that, and I'm not going to spoil the the ending, but there's a twist ending involving Mark Ruffalo's character. Did it feel like he went way above and beyond what he needed to to pull yeah, off this? Yes. Really, like, yeah. 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 Really silly the choice is pretty dumb. Overly yeah. cinematic. Yeah. Like, why'd yep. you do it like that? Yeah. But that's how like, that's how every aspect of this movie yeah. felt to me. Yeah. Yeah. That they, they, they Hollywooded it right. in, in, in every aspect. When if they just pulled back a little bit, this could have been really yeah, fun. Yeah, I think maybe yeah. in a uh, more subtle director's hands, the, that's, uh, the film would That's have, a great word for it. This yeah. movie lacked subtlety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was constantly like, we're like It had all the right pieces there, but it was just to hit you over the head. That's exactly what it was. It was to hit you over the head. But that being said, I didn't hate this movie either. I yeah. was glad I watched it's it. It's fun. It's it is. It's fun escapism. I mean, I wasn't. And, I wasn't mad. I didn't, it, I didn't throw any chairs off the top of buildings or anything <laughs> after I watched. Especially it. when they go into the details of how they do some of the tricks. Like I love the bank vault. Yeah. Trick. Like yeah. that was awesome. I yeah. really enjoyed that. It it had enough to keep me engaged. It wasn't a great film, but it was a good film and one I would I would recommend. Yeah. I, I wouldn't recommend it. I'd recommend just pulling up some videos of David Blaine doing crazy tricks. Would you recommend Harrison it to Ford. someone you hate? No. Ooh. No. I don't hate anybody. That's would you rec- recommend it to for about thirty seconds. Yeah, you really hated me earlier. <laughs> yeah, but that's just because it was so much fun. Would you recommend it to our tween listeners? No, I'd recommend that they watch some better things <laughs> that will enrich their lives a little bit more. Um, I, I did, I, with a caveat, I do think in terms of Mark Ruffalo's um, filmmaking career that Avengers would have been a nicer end here. But I wanted to talk about Now You See Me because I feel like it's a movie that needs defending a little bit more. It definitely needs defending. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what are you guys excited about? The show The Last Man on Earth has returned to television to finish up their third season, I believe. And this show has gotten really, really good. I watched the first season and a half of the show and I loved it. Really, really cool show. Really funny, really quirky, really weird for a uh, yeah, major really network show. Yeah. They do these great little things. They have some episodes that are just kind of one-off that show random survivors and how they made it through the time. And those are always interesting. And the last yeah. one was about Kristen Wiig and it was really good. Will Forte is the uh, star. Yeah. Hmm. Check it out. What I'm excited about, Hudson, I actually have to give you credit for this one. Oh my God. You mentioned a show on HBO called V. Yeah. I think you told me about it about a week ago. It has five seasons. I've watched four seasons already <laughs> wow. while I was out of town this past week. It's fantastic. Very I really enjoyed show. it. Very, it's it's subtle. It's not like over the top. No yeah. laugh track. It has kind of arrested development feel, which is my yeah. favorite. No wonder comedy. we couldn't get in touch yeah. with you. Yeah, no, I've I haven't watched Veep consistently, but every episode I I catch is just hilarious. I'm excited about uh, in the timeline that we're actually recording this episode. The trailer for Baby Driver just came out, uh, which is the Edgar Wright film. I'm a huge fan of Edgar Wright and all the movies he's done so far, but especially this one, Baby Driver is kind of a crime caper getaway driver movie thing, but it was shot in Atlanta where mm-hmm. we record the podcast where we all live. And uh, not only is it shot in Atlanta, but it takes place in Atlanta. So in the trailer there, you get to see some, you know, actual 
Atlanta landmarks and them talking about actual Atlanta places. So I'm excited to see a movie set in Atlanta directed by Edgar Wright. Yeah. I'm excited to still have the majority of my 10 fingers. Oh, yeah. Ooh. What happened, Jordan? I was cutting some wood on my table saw. I <laughs> And uh, this happens to be a table saw that my dad gave me after he stuck his finger in it. So the other day I was ripping some boards, as they say, and I accidentally I ran that? my sounds finger. Sounds like a euphemism. <laughs> yeah, it's not. <laughs> okay. I-O. So I accidentally uh, ran my, my finger through the blade and it cut off about a third of my fingernail and went down into my nail bed and made some pretty cool pictures. Uh, how long was it before you sent us a picture of this injury? I think about five minutes. <laughs> that was your first thought? Yeah, yeah, basically right when it started bleeding I, I sent it. No. Your I, wife was, was like, Jordan, let's get to the hospital. Hang on, babe. I gotta get a good shot of this. Send it to the guys. No, I had to, I, I didn't think I could drive because I, I almost passed out a little bit into it. So I, I was waiting for Lily to come home and I was just laying on the couch and thought, oh, this will be a fun thing to send out to some people. Gotcha. So, I, um, so lessons for anybody using a table saw this weekend uh don't don't (laughs) no do just i just be careful which i i was i was being overly careful too much to explain so it's the show now called three and a half friends fight about film (laughs) well there's more than half of me left all right guys thanks a lot for listening this is all of us for diabetes yeah (laughs) hey y'all jordan here reporting live from the middle of the jungle Be sure to join us next week as we talk about a non-material girl Madonna, a two-paid actor-director, old Walt Disney getting shot in the leg, and a south-of-the-border E.T. Confused? Join the club. But it'll all make sense when we yap about the funniest movies. Next week on Four Friends Fight About Film. And now, a message for your health. This is Wilford Brimley for Four Friends Fight About Film. Let us know how your list differs at, at Fight About Film on Facebook and Twitter or email us at fightaboutfilm at gmail.com. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Four Friends Fight About Film is produced by the Brothers Ray in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was recorded and edited by Jordan Noel. And check your diabetes. I was on top of the world living high. It was right in my pocket. I would live in the life. Things were just the way they should be When from out of the sky like a bomb Comes some little punk in a rocket Now all of a sudden Some strange things are happening to me I had friends I had lots of friends Now all my friends are gone And I'm doing the best I can Carry on. I had power. power. I was respected. But not anymore. And I've lost the love. The one who my door. Let me tell you about a strange thing that happened to me. Out a stranger. The minute you turn your back, you're in it all by yourself. Then laugh at your jokes, you think you're doing quite well, but you're in danger, boy. You 
Michelle. 